Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's graduation season. So if you have a new graduate in your life, here's a fantastic graduation present that you can enter for a chance to win. QuickAndDirtyTips.com is running a sweepstakes offering an amazing bundle of books for free, like the essay collection Freshman Year of Life, Jamie Oliver's cookbook, Five Ingredients, and When to Jump by Mike Lewis. Just think of it as a starter pack for life after college. Just visit bit.ly slash QDT life after college to enter for your chance to win. Good luck. Welcome to Case Closed. I'm Charlie Spicer, your true crime guide through the Snyderman case. We left off with the announcement that Hemi was unable to tell the difference between right and wrong at the time of the murder. That he, under Georgia law, was not guilty by reason of insanity. But where do we go from here? The prosecution is shocked. The public is shocked. So, let's go back to March 2011. Hemi is in jail after his initial arrest. One of Hemi's attorneys, Robert Rubin, calls Dr. Julie Rand Dorney a forensic psychiatrist and highly sought expert in criminal cases. Rubin wants her to conduct a screening. He's looking for any signs of psychological issues that would be relevant to the defense. She begins by asking Hemi for a personal history. His calm, collected exterior hides a lifetime of pain. Much of this pain was rooted in Hemi's family history during and after the Holocaust. His father, Mark Newman, was among 130 family members taken to the Auschwitz Nazi death camp. This included Hemi's great-grandparents, grandparents, six uncles, and various cousins and other relatives. Of them, only 12 survived, including Mark and his brother, Hemi's uncle. After the war, Mark Newman made his way to Mexico, he was a small man, barely five feet tall, but apparently had his charms, for he married the stunningly beautiful and very young Rebecca Cohen, 17 years old to his 36. They had a boy, Hemi's older brother, followed by Hemi, and 18 months later, his sister Monique. The concentration camp never stopped haunting his father, seared into his psyche like the number tattoo on his forearm, Hemi claims. Hemi and his sister said Mark Newman was a detached father and husband, the marriage strained by constant arguing. His father had jewelry shops selling to tourists, but went bankrupt at least twice. In an account under oath from Hemi's sister, Mark Newman would come in around 6 p.m. from work, the children never knowing what his mood would be. When their mother was around, she too was tense. The smallest things would set him off. The first thing Mark Newman would do was drink one or two scotches, Hemi's sister would say in court. Then, whoever was home would sit for dinner. If Hemi's mother was there, the first of the night's arguments would start at the dinner table. The shouting would lead to violence, according to Hemi and his sister. 
Hemi's father would slap the children with an open hand, they claimed. He once shoved a vegetable spoon into the nose of Hemi's sister, she said. He would scream at his wife, but she wouldn't budge. He couldn't control her, and that made him even angrier, Hemi would tell therapists. Hemi said he bore the brunt of the abuse. When Hemi turned 13, his already difficult life was plunged into upheaval. Pack, you're going to Israel, his father told him one day. Hemi was being sent to a boarding school. He had never been to Israel and didn't speak Hebrew. Hemi spent the first few weeks not in the classroom, but in the infirmary in a sickly haze, his temperature soaring to 104 degrees. A nurse asked him where his parents were so they could pick him up. Hemi said they were in Puerto Rico and wouldn't be coming. He said he had relatives in Israel, but didn't know where they were or how to contact them. As Rosh Hashanah approached, the nurse asked where he would spend the holidays. Hemi said he didn't know. So the nurse brought him to her home. She placed him in what Hemi later described as a shack that lacked heat in January. He felt orphaned and abandoned and plunged into what later would be determined to be depression. After boarding school, Hemi went to the United States to study at Georgia Tech. There, he would be a solid student. But in 1981, his sophomore year, the dark feelings returned. He lacked energy, had no motivation, didn't want to go to class, didn't want to study. All he wanted to do was sleep. When he was awake, he felt in a fog, unable to focus. His GPA fell, and for the first time, he didn't make the dean's list. That summer, the depression lingered, even though he joined his sister in Miami. After graduating from Georgia Tech and returning to work in Israel, he married Ariella. He had a good job, and they started a family, welcoming the twins. Then, in 1998, Hemi surprised everybody. During a trip to South Florida to visit his family, he impulsively bought a house in Boca Raton and moved his family there. He quit his job and was unemployed when they arrived. They lived off the proceeds of selling their house in Israel. His energy level soared. He couldn't sleep. He toyed with becoming a pilot. He never found employment. The money ran out and tensions ran high at home between him and Ariella, family history repeating itself, though their fights were always verbal. They moved back to Israel, where Hemi worked for a few years before returning to the United States for his job at GE. The steady, high-paying employment didn't seem to make matters better at home. When his sister visited in 2008, she could feel the tension. Money problems had been mounting. Hemi seemed manic, Asked by Dr. Rand Dorney how he felt about Andrea, Hemi recounted a biblical story. He had been reading the Bible and the Torah more frequently of late and said the first and second books of Samuel spoke to him. In the passages, David, the first king of the Jews, saw a beautiful and beguiling woman named Bathsheba bathing in the open on a nearby rooftop. Hemi said this reminded him of his August trip to Greenville, South Carolina, when he fantasized about Andrea, and, according to the therapist's notes, thinks he saw her naked, coming out of the shower, toweling herself. Hemi took it a step further. He became fixated not just on Andrea, but on her children. He told Rand Dorney that he went back and forth on whether he believed Sophia and Ian actually belonged to him and not Rusty. Becoming confused at times, he started to think the children were in danger. He told the psychiatrist, I feel like I need to protect them. 
After speaking with Hemi for several hours at the jail, Dr. Rand Dorney found symptoms of a psychotic disorder and the possibility that he was driven by obsessive thoughts. He developed toward Andrea what mental health professionals call erotomanic delusions, but wavered on whether he actually had sex with her or just thought he did. As that relationship evolved, he became more and more consumed by it, but depressed at the same time, Rand Dorney later said. At points, he said he had sex with this woman, and then I'd ask, and he'd say, I don't know if it's true. One psychologist's opinion is not enough to absolve a murder charge. The defense feels immense pressure to prove Hemi's illness, particularly as the pretrial hearings move in a negative direction for their case. So they hire another psychologist named Dr. Adriana Flores. She was one of the top forensic psychologists in Georgia. She is so well-regarded that D.A. James likewise seeks her out. Her testimony on Hemi's mental state will be central to the arguments at trial. Flores visited Hemi for the first time on September 8, 2011. She would conduct three sessions in total. Her work would involve Hemi's statements and statements from people close to him, like his parents and his sister. Flores would try to talk to Andrea, but unsurprisingly, she refused. Hemi begins detailing his history for Dr. Flores. Hemi once again recalled his difficult childhood, his abrupt relocation to a boarding school, and the horrible time in the cold shack. Only this time, he added details. One day in the shack, he experienced a demon, Flores later said. He was feeling really, really horrible, asking God what he did to deserve this. Why have I been forsaken? He described the demon as over six feet tall in a heavy cloak. He said he felt anguish, deep pain, said Flores. At that moment, he did not want to live, and he prayed to God to take him. Hemi said the demon would periodically return. The next time, in 1981, when Hemi was a sophomore at Georgia Tech and suffering the depression that left him unable to do schoolwork and constantly craving sleep. Hemi did not see the vision again for years, absent during his manic years when he moved to Florida, then back to Israel, then to Atlanta, where he was a fiend at work and ran up bills at home. Then, in February 2010, it reappeared. At the time, the financial and marital strains had sent Hemi into another depression. He was feeling like a failure, a wreck, very low energy, oversleeping, wanted to sleep life away, Dr. Flores would later say. During a day trip for business to Greenville, the demon emerged in Hemi's car. The feelings of pain and abandonment overwhelmed Hemi. Up ahead on the road was a concrete barrier. Hemi considered slamming the car into it, then changed his mind. He couldn't do that to his children. It was shortly thereafter, in March 2010, that he received the resume from Andrea Snyderman. He hired her, and they began traveling together, Hemi feeling an immediate connection. They chatted easily and commiserated and drew ever closer, bonding over their shared personal problems at home. She was, Hemi told Dr. Flores, the first person he could ever really talk to, and he held back nothing. His childhood stories about his abusive father and the boarding school flooding out of him for the first time. During the trip to Minden, Nevada, they had what he called an intimate dinner in Lake Tahoe, where he read her a poem and told her she was beautiful. He said they kissed, a chaste kiss, but one he'd never forget. A few weeks later, when Andrea went to the training session in Longmont, Colorado, Hemi initially stayed behind, he said, but then a spectral vision appeared. 
This time, it took a female form, sort of an angel. Materializing while Hemi was attending a dinner party with his wife, the angel told him that Ian and Sophia Snyderman were his children and that he needed to let Andrea know. For Hemi, what he saw as a growing relationship with Andrea brought both joy and sorrow. While in Longmont, he said, he could feel her putting up an emotional wall. They returned to the hotel and shared a bed, but Andrea did not want to have sex, he claimed. The next day, she was angry, and he bought her flowers. But over dinner, her mood changed. They shared a bottle of wine and spent the night in the same bed. The morning spent cuddling. She stroked his chest. He would describe it as the most incredible moment of his life. Then she would change again. She sent him the email expressing confusion and regret. The next time a vision came was after Hemi saw Rusty during a visit to the Snyderman house in August 2010. While driving home, a female angel appeared in the car. According to Hemi, she told him that Andrea's children were at risk from Rusty. He's going to hurt them, the angel warned, and you have to protect them. You can't let this happen again. A tremendous pain overcame Hemi. As he's driving, he thought, I have to kill him, said Flores. And he said that from that point on, he said, I got my marching orders. I was a faithful soldier doing what I had to do. He never second-guessed the orders or analyzed them. His only thought was, how do I do it? He considered poison. He thought about running Rusty over. Then he decided on a gun. It would be a fire-and-forget mission, homing in on the target and then proceeding without looking back, according to Hemi, all to protect the children. Entering another manic phase, Hemi made the Greenville trip with Andrea on August 26th. In his retelling to the psychologist, they had adjoining rooms and fed each other during a dinner of tapas and wine. Returning to the hotel with another bottle of wine, they cozied up in bed and watched The Goodbye Girl on the computer, both in their pajamas, kissing and cuddling. His memory now faded. They may have had sex, but he couldn't be sure. All he knew was that afterward, she was upset, the feelings she later expressed in her emails when she told him she felt horrible and would have to live with this the rest of her life. For weeks, there was emotional push and pull, and Hemi wavered on whether to go to the UK with her, eventually deciding to, only to face more mixed emotions from Andrea. When they made their second trip to Greenville, the pattern continued. One minute, Andrea expressing regret, the next, dancing with him at the Pulse nightclub. Their communications would become more frequent and intense, emails and texts and phone calls, Hemi's obsessions building, his plans to commit murder coming into focus. The first attempt came on the morning of November 10th, 2010. The homeless man lurking around the gas meter at the Snyderman house was in fact Hemi wearing a disguise, lying in wait to shoot Rusty. But then Rusty called 911 and Hemi had to flee into the woods, which he knew about because he'd visited their home previously. Eight days later, Hemi set out again to kill Rusty. He bought a different disguise, rented the Kia Sedona minivan, followed Rusty into the preschool parking lot, and this time shot him dead. Hemi took full and complete responsibility. Andrea knew nothing about it, he told Dr. Flores. If anything, he worried what Andrea would say if she found out the killer was Hemi. 
The fake beard was not intended to fool Rusty, he told Dr. Flores, but so Andrea wouldn't know who killed Rusty. Hemi didn't want her angry at him. Dr. Flores diagnosed Hemi as suffering a bipolar 1 disorder with psychosis manifested by delusions. The mania and depression spoke to the bipolar disorder, as did Hemi's hypersexuality at the time. The angel telling him to protect Andrea's children indicated delusions. How much of his relationship with Andrea also was a delusion was harder to determine, Flores said. She found enough independent evidence to suggest they had at least an emotional affair, but how far it went physically couldn't be determined. Dr. Flores believed that Andrea played a strong part in Hemi's emotional problems, giving him cues that reinforced his delusions and created his perceived attachment to her. Andrea, according to Dr. Flores, was manipulating him into believing what she believed and thinking what she thought. Andrea's inconsistent rewards and punishments perversely created a strong emotional bond. No matter how much she distanced herself from him, Hemi could count on Andrea coming back, Dr. Flores said. His mental illness was so severe, she concluded, that he was not criminally responsible for Rusty's murder, and that at the time he pulled the trigger, he did not know the difference between right and wrong. Everything, she said, points to him being criminally insane. There was always the possibility that Hemi was faking all this, inventing the demon and angel only so that he would appear insane and wiggle out of a murder rap. So much of Dr. Flores's findings hinged on what Hemi told her. If he was lying, her conclusions would be wrong. Dr. Flores conducted a battery of tests to determine if Hemi was faking mental illness. She concluded that Hemi was telling the truth. His mental illness, she said, was so severe that typically somebody in his condition would be committed to a mental health facility. One of the top forensic psychologists in the state analyzed Hemi and concluded he was seriously ill, but the prosecution refused to buy it. After the break, a suspicious jail transfer leads prosecutors to bring in one more psychologist. Case Closed is supported by Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Discover the world of Best Fiends and its cute, courageous inhabitants in this fiendishly fun, free-to-download puzzle adventure. Best Fiends is a totally unique puzzle experience. Solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect cute characters along the epic journey. Best Fiends is easy to learn, but difficult to master so you actually have to concentrate and use your brain. And you can play anywhere, alone or with friends. You can even play offline when you're not connected, like on a plane or on the subway. It's casual and colorful, with thousands of hours of fun ahead of you. You don't want to miss this five-star rated mobile adventure. Start solving thousands of fun puzzles today. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, like friends without the R. F-I-E-N-D-S. Best Fiends. Play today. This episode was supported by the new true crime book, Death on the River, by best-selling author Diane Fanning. On a windy afternoon in April 2015, an engaged couple... Angelica and Vincent, 
set out on a kayaking trip on the Hudson River. They set out at 4.15 p.m. By 7.15, Vincent was dead. His kayak had sunk, and he drowned in the 48-degree water. At first, police believed bad weather was to blame for the accident. But Angelica's erratic behavior raised suspicions. So, was it really an accident after all? Find out what happened to Vincent Villafor now. You can get a copy of Death on the River by Diane Fanning wherever books are sold. It's available in paperback, ebook, and digital audio. Again, that's Death on the River by Diane Fanning. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. Dr. Ran Dorney, Dr. Flores, and after Dr. Flores, another defense expert named Dr. Tracy Marks. All of these psychological examiners meet with Hemi and come to the conclusion that he has mental issues to some degree. But again, how convenient for the defense is this insanity claim? For the better part of a year, while in jail, Hemi was a model prisoner. Then, in October 2011, just days after his attorney's press conference announcing the insanity claim, something changes. Hemi requests to speak with the on-call jail clinician. Hemi reported that he had grown concerned for his safety. A new group of inmates had moved into his pod, among them two men who were contemplating throwing him down the stairs. They took exception to the fact he was Jewish and made reference to the fact that Jewish people did not accept Christ. The jail moved Hemi to protective custody, an area with a smaller pod, 12 inmates, and single inmate cells. To see if there was any evidence that Hemi was faking his problems and to build ammunition to rebut a defense insanity case, prosecutors hired their own expert. Dr. Pamela Crawford was a former U.S. Air Force psychologist who retired as a major. Licensed as a psychologist in South Carolina, Dr. Crawford did not have a license in Georgia where the trial would be held. She also was not currently board certified, having allowed her certification to lapse three years earlier. This, along with the fact that she would charge the state about $60,000 for her work, would make her vulnerable at trial. But the review was extensive, including two interviews with Hemi. More important, unlike the other experts, Crawford conducted her interviews on video. They met on November 4th and 5th, 2011. They covered the same issues, from his childhood through the hiring of Andrea Snyderman, but Crawford delved deeper into Hemi's claims of seeing the visions. Crawford asked first about the demon that appeared at the boarding school, at college, and then in the car. How far away from you is he typically? Crawford asked. Probably arm's length, said Hemi. Crawford asked what the demon sounded like. It's a deep voice. I've never been asked before, almost like Barry White. The female angel that appeared at the dinner party was also big, tall enough to reach the ceiling, he said. What does the voice sound like? Crawford asked. I compared his to Barry White, he said of the demon. She's got a light voice. Hemi tried to think of whom the angel reminded him of. What's her name? The Australian who played in Greece. What's her name? Olivia Newton-John? Crawford asked if she had an accent. Hemi said she didn't. Crawford also asked Hemi if he thought the visions were real. When he comes, I think he is real, Hemi said. Do you think he is real now? Now I'm talking to you and sort of analyzing, Hemi said. Probably not. 
Asked who else knew about his visions, Hemi said that he never told anybody until after he was arrested. You said you tell Andrea about things, said Crawford. Tell her about the demon? No. At best, an insanity defense is a major gamble, and history was not on Hemi's side. There was, however, one wild card in the defense strategy. While Hemi would admit that he killed Rusty Snyderman, both the prosecution and the defense came to believe he was driven by more than spectral visions and voices. Andrea Snyderman, the object of his passion and infatuation, was with him every step of the way, texting, emailing, talking, and phoning. How much blame for her husband's death could be laid at her feet? And what did she have to say now? The wait for answers would not be long. Remember a few episodes ago how we saw the police shifting blame onto Andrea? Now, once again, we see that pattern. The defense sees Andrea's unavailability, both to police and to the psychologists, as suspicious. They are working off Hemi's word, which, as we've already established, may be compromised. What part did Andrea play in fueling Hemi's delusions? Or is she an innocent woman with a difficult home life, someone who was trying to cope with the advances of a man she didn't realize was ill? As the trial plays out, Andrea becomes more and more central to both the prosecution and the defense, even as she tries to avoid the limelight. We start the next episode on the first day of the trial, the first day of the rest of Hemi's life. Stay tuned for what unfolds on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. This season is based on the book Crazy for You by Michael Fleeman. Get the book or the audiobook using the link in our show notes. The show is produced by Becky Celestina with help from Sarah Grill and Alyssa Martino. We also want to thank Michael Fleeman. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear all of this season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash case closed and use code closed to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.